Hello and welcome to the Deep State Consciousness Podcast. I have Fiona Robertson back here again today. A couple of months ago, Fiona and I had a conversation about her work doing self-inquiry, living inquiry sessions with people. And after that, we got chatting about the application of this kind of thought to politics and political arguments. And it's something Fiona had written a chapter in her book about, uh, which really caught my eye. So we arranged to come back on and have a bit of a chat about that. Good morning, Fiona. Hi, good to be here. Maybe just really briefly for a start, summarize the work you do. So anyone who hasn't seen the previous interview knows what we're, we're at. Yeah, so the inquiries are a way to deeply investigate whatever our experience is in all its layers so we typically it involves unraveling beliefs but that's not that's not all of it we also go into um all the structures that create difficulties in our lives in some way so that might be around self self beliefs beliefs about ourselves which aren't particularly helpful or um conducive to, to growth in some way it's also to do with things like um, compulsions old traumas things like that it's really a way of investigating what's here and allowing it to un to unravel in a natural organic way okay so a typical day for you might be interacting with people with issues around anxiety or addiction but you yeah mentioned you've also had people come to you in recent months because they felt, let me see if I'm getting this right, like kind of like emotional upheaval over some of the political events, whether it's Brexit or Trump. And that's what we, where we kind of left off with when we were chatting afterwards last time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my sense of it is that whatever's happening in our internal world is obviously affected or impinged upon in some way by the wider world. So we can't simply contain sessions to to the personal in a sense we we inevitably move wider out be that into the to the political or sometimes even the what we might call them the mystical or more, more spiritual realms in some way <clears throat> but i think we can't help to you know all of us interact with the with the wider world in some way whether we consider ourselves political or not mm. and it's certainly something that comes up in sessions reasonably often um, that, that we find ourselves, people find themselves deeply affected by things going on in the world. Yeah. And you wrote this chapter of your book on realizing the political is personal. Yeah. I think to get that the right way around every time because it's a reversal of a feminist phrase right from the 70s that the personal is political yes just maybe explain uh well maybe just touch on what the feminists meant by that and then how what you mean when you swap the words around yeah my understanding of the original phrasing that the personal is political is really to do with the fact that our the pers the structures around the personal realm so things like marriage or um even even relationship happens happens within the context of politics that there are there are political aspects to that that in, you could say say for example with marriage that it was always a a political and or economic mm. 
structure in the first place. Um, so that's my understanding of what was originally meant that we can't say that the, the personal realm is somehow separate okay. or devoid of politics. My sense of it was that likewise, and this is a, this is a both and rather an either or, likewise, we could equally say that the political is personal in the sense that our, everything from the shaping of our views, our emotional responses to political events, all of that is, is also coming from the, from the space of the personal. So we can't really divorce our personal realm from, from, our, from our political views any more than we can divorce our personal realm from the politics the other way around. Okay, and, and one of the reasons we thought this might be a fun thing to do is because you've traditionally, I think it's fair to say, associated with the kind of political left. Yeah, broadly speaking, I mean, I, I was, well, I, I came of age, in fact, in 1979, the year that Margaret Thatcher came to power in, in the UK. And I think it's fair to say that probably about 21, when I finished university, uh, I came out to one of the largest um, dole queues that had ever been seen in, in the UK, well, certainly since the 30s. So that <clears throat> I started to get interested in politics in the early 1980s um, and, and throughout the, the Thatcher years when my sense was that it was it was a a more clear cut business in a sense that there was there was the government and and Thatcher there was there was the left and there wasn't much ground in between really right um so at that point it was it was a pretty clear cut choice for me which that which side I stood on so to speak okay yeah and the reason we thought it might be interesting then is cuz um i don't know where i sit on the spectrum but i'm like I'm not on the left, right? Which for me, it's interesting going along to the kind of spirituality events we might have been together at sometimes, because there is a substantial swing to the green left there in terms of what people, um, what the kind of positions people would take and the candidates they would support and reject and that kind of thing. And what I often find happens is around about the second day, political conversations start to emerge because people people who are interested in their own inner world of consciousness and finding a sense of deeper identity and emotional and psychological resolution are also the kind of people who are often interested in transforming the world into a better place and yeah i do notice i, I tend to sit back and observe a bit these conversations but when, when people are talking about the spiritual stuff because they've all been drawn to the same group there's a lot of agreement goes on people by and large have the same perspectives um but when it gets to the political there's still a fair amount of agreement but not entirely and that can be surprising for participants sometimes because i think we've probably all done this at some point in our lives but we've assumed there's a direct link between our inner religious spiritual views our moral values our sense of ethics and who we would vote for at the ballot box. And therefore, it's the right choice. Okay. Yes. You know, good people, virtuous people, people who want the best and want to share their toys and everyone to play fair would definitely vote this way and would definitely have these kind of views on economics. 
and people who are somehow other or people who are selfish or they just don't quite get it or they're short-sighted only those kind of people would vote in the other direction and I, I don't expect to meet those kind of people here so um for me it's interesting because i i've I, as i try and sort of sit back and observe these things a bit more now but i do see um a look of real incredulity arising sometimes what you know you think that kind of so that's that's um yeah a, a, what goes on there and I wondered I suppose how you find that and the also the, the kind of self-examination you've done around where your positions come from yeah I mean the reason I'm smiling partly is because we what whatever our views are we all believe we're in the camp of the the, the, the good don't we Absolutely. so <laughs> it's there might be some people that don't right there, I mean, you might get like there might be some dr evil types in the world but i've never met one right? no <laughs> i i have no i haven't met anybody yet that says well like, my politics are this way because because i'm, I'm selfish and greedy for and people yes slave trade yeah a absolutely so yeah i mean it's interesting isn't it we all position ourselves in in that way which i think is a is a natural thing and one of the things that um, also helped me to understand what was going on with, with political thinking was to come across the idea of certainty bias. Mm. Um, I think you've probably read about that. I've read your yeah, the, chapter on it. Oh, right, yeah. Because being in, uncertain, in an uncertain space, either externally or internally is associated with feeling unsafe or threatened in some way we tend to hold on to certainty purely because it makes us feel better it makes us feel more secure less threatened and apparently research has shown that people will hold on to certainty even when it's been shown to be in, invalid factually so the idea that we're swayed by factual argument is actually far less true than we like to believe. So this, this started me thinking because obviously we tend to assume that our political views are formed out of rationality and reason and you know, intellectual rigor, don't we? Yeah. And, and what I began to see was that actually that's not necessarily the case, that we can have um, a much more emotional, much more primal even sometimes sense of, of belonging or certainty or all of those things can come into play. And what we presume are facts, of course, aren't necessarily facts. But more importantly than that, I think when we start to come inwards and, and look at the things that are running behind the scenes and perpetuating our, our political stances, we, f we find that below the one-tenth of the iceberg that's on the surface, you know, which is our outward political views, they're informed by this whole 90% under the surface, which is which is not to do with a part of us that's rational, logical necessarily. 
And I think when we start to tap into that, it's not necessarily that our views will massively change or that we'll swing from one side to the other, or although, you know, there may be some modifications in that. I think it's that we get much clearer on, on what's going on and therefore less, um, less attacking of other, others' views, um, more measured potentially in how we put them across. And, and clearer on where we're coming from, I'd say. And what did that inquiry lead to in yourself when you look beneath the surface? Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll say mine in a minute. But what did you, <coughs> yeah, what did I mean, the, one of the first things I saw, and I wrote about this in the original article, was seeing that my my response to what we often call the 1%, you know, the the, the rich and the bankers and so on was was partly fueled by an, an inner sense and it was unconscious until I saw it that I have to be modest that I have to play myself down I you know and it covered a whole range of things really you know don't don't boast don't pick yourself up in some way and also be modest in terms of your of in terms of consumption and spending and all of those things and I recognize that I do um, I am modest not just because I'm good as it were which is how I'd often seen it like well I'm I'm not a massive consumer because you know I'm I'm doing the right thing yeah. that actually there was something deeper than that running which was really about a kind of self-suppression and it it was all childhood stuff you know messages that I'd got things I'd interjected or, or taken on and I was then projecting that in some way onto, onto people who who have more than me materially or have more than you know the vast majority of us and um, that yeah that, that just loosens something up I mean it's not then that I thought you know I didn't then come to a position of thinking that oh well equalities inequalities all all right then mm. but it but it did show me, it was the first time I really saw in detail, wow, okay, those views are formed by something personal. Okay, and did it shift your feeling towards the Bill Gates and Richard Branson's of this world, the kind of 1%? Did you notice, I don't know, I mean, I'm not, just, not necessarily that your view on what the top tier tax rate should be changed, but... <laughs> maybe a more feeling yes of. and i think that's an interesting distinction to make because i realized that what i was doing was thinking that there was something essentially in, inherently bad for those people mm. um and certainly you know when i think about that now particularly people who haven't um inherited that position i do feel a little differently about them yes because i could see that actually things like the top tier tax rate are, are really are really to the point politically my feelings about those people more on a more personal level yeah. was was actually the thing that that changed somewhat and it, it was really it's a, um, a settling of that like just not getting so rattled about that sort of thing 
not getting so emotional sure. about it. Yeah, I find the, when you talk about the modesty thing, what pops into my head is I find it with um, guru types or people that make like exaggerated claims and then there can be an abusive aspect to the work. I, I noticed I had a, yes. quite a strong visceral reaction to people doing that. Okay. And in a sense, you know, there's a lot to, there to disapprove of uh, quite legitimately, but I was aware of my inner reaction to it was quite strong. And in a sense, then it sort of triggers my own sense of needing to be modest, I think. And I'm looking at this group who are anything but modest and seeing that what well, they're getting away of all. And it, so I had to become aware of it on that level, on that level two of what it was affecting in me. Yes, exactly. I mean, I mean, these things pertain to every area of life, really, don't they? Not just politics, but like you say, spirituality and so on. And I think those of us who have already elected to, to be in this, this world of deeper investigation, I think it, it, it behooves us really to, to look at all of that, because as I said, I don't think we can separate that off. You know, we can't split parts of life off and say, well, that's, yeah, I'm not going to look at any of that because that's, that's to do with the outside world and not me. We know that that's not the case. So it makes good sense to me to, to look at that stuff just as we would at anything going on in our lives personally. When I've examined on this myself as to what's really in the depth of me, where my political positions emerge from and as, as I alluded to before I don't I don't fit the totally typical bill at the kind of groups I might attend or in wider society so I have fairly what you could call libertarian um, political views so small or no government a kind of anarchic thing but a kind of like a anarcho-capitalist thing okay so more of a, a view towards free markets which really is quite distinct from a lot of what you meet in culture and when I, when I examine that, I, I can trace back to even being a teenager and remembering my history teacher writing a basic definition of classical liberalism on the chalkboard and saying a person has a right to do as they wish, as long as it doesn't interfere with the, the liberty or well-being of another person, like a, something like how he defined it. And I remember just sitting there thinking, yeah, that's the one for me. And when I, when I go deep with that, I remember even having like strong feelings about um, the wrongness of drugs prohibition as a teenager. And so underneath that is sense in me that's always been there of life being a kind of mystery, right? Like I'm aware that I don't know what's going on and I don't get the sense that other people have reached an enlightened position where they do. And I don't get the sense that some sort of democratic collective suddenly confers on the prime minister knowledge of what's going on. So it seemed like a real affront to me, to human dignity and to this sense of how mysterious this place is, that people could dictate to others like how they should um, investigate hmm. this kind of mystery and that, that they could take on the responsibility for themselves. It's like it brings up this feeling of like, well, what right do you have to do that? And, and probably then maybe deeper still feelings of uh, my own sense of oppression. I, I don't know. Um, but that was really like core to me from the side. I remember having this kind of position um, right from the get go. And that's probably married to another pole of wanting people to be taken care of, right? And not wanting people dying on the streets for the absence of some kind of 
freely or easily available medicine and social security. Um, so for, you know, I don't know if that requires deeper explanation, really, just a sense of human compassion and a sense of fairness and, you know, want a sense of oneness between uh, humanity. And then there's, so there's those two poles I recognize have always been in me trying to find a reconciliation with mm. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I relate to the, to those core pieces the the piece around unfairness and and not wanting people to to suffer you know i remember i mean even as we're talking i get i get a memory of being at the the dinner table very young and my mother's saying you know there's children the the, the classic thing is being told you know eat your dinner because there's children starving in africa yes. Yes. and and being horrified that on the one hand somehow that was being made into my problem in that moment like so what if i don't eat my dinner the children are going to be starving more mm. or you know it's, a, it's sort of a level of confusion around that and also the the very natural horror that that was happening mm. somewhere that there were children somewhere and i really had no concept of what or where Africa was I mean I was about five or six but just the idea that that what there are children who aren't having their tea yeah the same so, I think in the 80s where Live Aid was the, oh of course the yeah memories on tv and seeing people starving in Ethiopia so like that and then wondering like why do we have borders why can't there's loads of food here why can't they come here and you know, I, was, I was six right so that, that was what yeah sorry carry, carry on yeah so that piece about un unfairness basically and, and not wanting people to suffer and and i think what we're talking about are very basic human drives aren't they that are there <clears throat> that i think are really part of our our deepest humanity we know on some level that we're not separate <clears throat> and yet i think somewhere along the line that gets skewed doesn't it both both personally and collectively we start to see us and them in all sorts of different ways and i think we also start to split off from different parts of ourselves one of the things i recognized in myself a few years back was how i'd split off from my own strength and sided sided with the underdog because i felt like an underdog mm. you know always worked in areas of deprivation for example always felt more at home there because of my own sense of of disadvantage mm. which was really more of a in a sense more of a personal disadvantage in terms of the family structure than than a major um economic disadvantage yeah. although there was a bit of that in my childhood I and mean, we you know we were we certainly weren't rich um but that I somehow I deem strength as being something that I didn't want to be, didn't want to have, didn't want to be. And so that kind of skewing, I think, can happen, that that splitting off of parts of ourselves that then get projected outwards mm. um, or things that we identify with or as that we then find other other people like us in some shape or form you know that then there's an identification as part of a group or part of a 
a, a subculture in some way. And then we find ourselves having a, an argument on Facebook about economic policies that are driven by things that are more to do with disowning strengths or everyone aware of that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we look at the, the, the extreme end of that, I think, you know, we've, we see how toxic that then becomes. I mean, the fact that these things are, are, are driven unconsciously often, the kind of levels of vitriol and hatred and attack that happen um, in an unconscious way then, then do become, I think, really toxic. Um, and again, I think it, it, it's important that we all look at our behavior in that respect. You know, how are we debating? What are we saying? What, what are we posting? Sure. So that we all take some responsibility for that. So we've just gotten access to the internet, really, and found a way of communicating globally. But a bit of a different way of communicating, like it's not face-to-face, -face, where you're aware that it's a human being you're talking to. It's little text boxes that are popping up, um, which changes the nature of it for a start. Yeah. It does feel to me, like the general level of dialogue has decreased in many ways um, recently. There's more anger between opposing groups, left and right, Brexit and Remain, Trump and not Trump. And more, yeah, just this real strong sense of polarization coming through and a real attachment to one's own views. Is that your sense of the world too? Um. Yes, in short, I th I think I think that's definitely seems to be part of what's happening, and I don't know if it's because you know, in in the nineties and the early part of the the two thousands, it felt like you know back in the days when people were saying, oh well, I don't I don't vote because they're all the same. Mm -hmm. You know, there was that sense certainly in the UK, wasn't there, of it, of politics really being a homogenous. Yeah. M mass That's true yeah um, the Blair years there was I mean yeah kind of a conservative guy so. it, 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 yeah <laughs> exactly one, so it, it, it felt like there was really no differentiation in yeah. a sense and it feels like now we're moving out of that into these much more polarized yeah it's a good point states. I never thought of it that way yeah which is it's obvious actually now you say it yeah mm. and I think in a way that then maybe more part of what's happening is that things that were already happening but a bit more below the surface are becoming much more evident you know things it feels like we're in this phase when when things are coming out you know we've just had the whole round of people being exposed for for being sexual predators in hollywood and so on people people coming out saying yeah me too you know it feels like there's a there's a lot being exposed in the course of that um across the across the board really yeah it is it is a unique opportunity right and i think that it gets defined by how we use it in this period of history that we've uh, like never been for being able to communicate about and just fundamentally understand the structures of the world we live in okay so like I was watching um, an economics documentary on YouTube on central banking, okay? And it must have been made maybe in the late 90s or early 2000s and then 
it's one of the early videos on YouTube. And at the end of it, it says like, if you'd like to know more about this, send a self-stamped addressed envelope off to, and <laughs> that's, uh, they had no idea of the world that was just around the corner. But now we have the opportunity, like never before, we've gone from a world where people wouldn't even know what the king looked like, you know, 150 years ago, to um, one where people can really delve into the underlying economic, political structures that are creating the world for us and can deconstruct that and question, well, what, why is it this way? Why does all the money have the queen's head on it? What does that really mean? And um, why do we have these wars periodically? What's going on at the terrorist events? Um, but what's also playing out in that discovery of knowledge is, you know, to be human for the longest time has been quite a traumatic experience with wars and bubonic plagues and all sorts going on. And there is that then attachment, this kind of, I think, certainty addiction, right, is the, the term you used before. Um, if we find a security in our opinions, okay, and I, I, one experience that sticks out of my mind about this is I was at um, a, a meditative group years ago uh, having a conversation with someone at dinner afterwards, and we were having a disagreement on something. Um, and at some point, the other person just like let go his opinion and saw my point of view for a moment, right? And I was like, oh, that's an unusual thing to do. And what it was reflective of to me was that they cultivated a deeper sense of identity, right? So there was a felt sense of security that if I, if I let go of this opinion I'm holding so tightly, I'll still exist almost, right? I won't dissolve with that. Exactly. And that's what feels like is lacking. And it, um, so I look at that in a kind of Eastern metaphysical way about the nature of the self. And I've also heard psychotherapists like Donald Winnicott talk about it in terms of when there's bad parenting or there's no healthy attachment developed there, um, ideas themselves become kind of weird parental figures. Which you claim. Abs absolutely. And I think that's really central to the whole conversation, isn't it? When our whole, when those ideas and beliefs are our identity, and like you say, particularly when we've not had, when they're a replacement for what we didn't have, it's not surprising then that we'll, we'll absolutely stand our ground. I mean, people, people, as we know, people are willing to die for their ideas, mm. their beliefs. It goes that deep, doesn't it? So the idea then that, um, you know, we feel personally attacked when somebody disagrees with our, our views about politics uh, I think really cuts to the core of it, doesn't it? We, we believe we are that. And certainly in my experience, inquiry gives us a way to start to, to unravel that, to see that we will still stand if, if somebody disagrees with us or we aren't that collection of beliefs or positions. I think that's absolutely yeah. central. It's fundamental to get over it being a threatening thing. I think what goes along with that is to pick up also on what you were saying about rationality and that we see our views as being rational because we have a sense that there is this objective thing called rationality. And if you use it, it will lead you to the truth. Whereas I would see that rationality is perspective dependent. So when we put the blinkers up of our own ideas and we're looking straight down a, a narrow tube, our choices appear rational to us because we've got all these unconscious things going on in the background that inform our worldview. 
and everyone else is then irrational absolutely and it's an interesting one isn't it that we believe we believe in like you say that we that we are capable of objectivity when by definition as you say there's there's really no such no such thing we can't have a rationality free of three of three of the lenses through which we're looking so when we're not aware of what those lenses are like you say we'll we'll believe that well of course i'm right richard it's very clear i'm being rational objective it's you who's unreasonable <clears throat> and when we're all doing that we're all missing we're all missing what our lenses are and even what somebody else's lenses might be so yes. so i think i think that's one of the one of the interesting things you know I, I noticed it the other day i saw a report which i hadn't seen before that um i think either seven or nine of the poorest areas within the european union are in the uk and all of those areas voted to voted for brexit now as a <clears throat> as somebody who voted remain i didn't previously know that and that piece of information started started to give me pause. You know, start, I started to reflect on that. I think, wow, I didn't I didn't know that fact. A, and B, how how tightly am I holding on to my position so as to not allow it to be mm. affected by that fact, or or am I willing am I willing for there to be some flexibility in that? However, that wherever that takes me. Am I willing for my position to be fluid or is it something rigid and, and static? Yeah, not being in the UK, I didn't have to even make a choice on whether I would vote or not. I was <laughs> mercifully removed from that whole thing. And that was interesting. I'm just outside and I could observe, and I did observe that uh, people... I think on both sides, I, I've sort of making a lot of assumptions about the other, right? And I think sometimes those assumptions were probably correct, okay? Um, because it was really clear on the emotional effect that Brexit had that leaving the EU, and I suppose the EU itself, had the EU really represented something to a lot of British people. Um, whether it was that thing in reality or not is another question, but it represented this coming together and a better future and the world transitioning to a better place and the sense of direction the world should inevitably be going in, this greater sense of cooperation and moving away from European tribalism. Now, I'm not saying it is any of those things, um, but and so Brexit then, the vote for it, represented a regressive loss of that to kind of barbaric people from somewhere else who would ruin this thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. This visceral sense of anger came up. And I think the the key part of what you just said is when these things become almost um, well, they become symbolic, don't they? They be, they become representative of so much more. I think it it then is important to to see what are those things representing to us? Because clearly, for the people who voted for Brexit, the EU, the EU, EU represented something completely different to them, didn't yeah. it? It represented something that constantly got in the way and was obstructive and 
all those other things. So I think when we become aware that the thing we're talking about isn't the thing that we're seeing, seeing it as, when we become aware of how we're constructing the thing, I think we're freed up to see it at least a little more clearly. You know, it's about taking some, at least some of the scales away from our eyes so that we can see like, oh, what I thought that was is actually a collection of my, my beliefs, my images, yeah, sure. my, my, it, that it's my construct, it's not it. Yes, and I find this occurs in all areas, like um, when I've engaged in dialogues with particularly religious friends, okay, they might tell me like all their reasons why the earth is definitely 6,000 years old, okay, and I'm not really attached to particular ideas about the age of the earth, right? Um, but I can certainly look at my friend saying this and think that's like, that's kind of far out. Like how you just had to be really weird to think that. Okay. So if I sink into the chain of reasoning that he might've gone through, okay. It starts with having some kind of mystical experience in a church, reading the Bible and feeling a sense of questioning and calling out as to whether God really exists and then feeling a sense of love and peace descend. Okay. And that all makes perfect sense. I've had experiences like that. Okay, so we're the same at this point. But this experience happened in a church and there was instantly someone there to help and give them a context for that and explain it. Mm. And then God wrote this handy book to help you understand it. And you can see there's this chain that leads to a 6,000 year earth. And so, okay, I can, on the one hand, I can see how that's a rational journey now, but also I can, I can point out, I can feel in my own mind, well, you know, come on, there's a separation there between that initial experience and what you've put upon it then. And I think you see the same thing politically in there's this sense of aspiration with the EU. There's a sense of um, Donald Trump being the boogeyman. Okay, but there's a distinction that can be made, uh, particularly the EU example. Well, okay, you have a sense of aspiration for the future. You have a sense of wanting the world to go into a better place. Now, is it a certainty that the EU represents that? Okay, we could question that. And then there's a, a division. There, yeah. where I feel people feel that the Brexit vote was a direct assault on their sense of aspiration. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I see happen over and over again, working with clients, doing my own looking in this, is that when when we start to separate out the the personal bits, that you know, the bits that are to do with our own history, our own traumas, and so on. We, we do start to, I think, think a little more clearly that there's, there's less um, haziness about the thinking because it's not fueled by all this stuff going on um, that isn't to do with the thinking. You know, you know how it is, you know, if you're, if you're in a state of uh, fight flight, for example, you know, you, you can't think clearly. And I think that's often the case with, yeah. with with these things that people get get so riled up, so so fueled up, because they touch into form, you know, other other stuff like historical traumas or or whatever it is. And and the the clearer we become on on what's ours and and tending to that that 
that part of it. I think the more discernment we can have, because I think it is important to, to say dis discernment and distinction are important, aren't they? You know, I don't think what we're saying is, oh, any idea is just the same as any other idea. You know, that, that there are... Sure, no, absolutely. ...good ideas and bad ideas. You know, there, there are... That, that we do want to move towards um, a greater sense of, of evolution, a greater sense of embodying what you described. Yeah, and ideas are very important to me. Like I, I know I said a minute ago, I'm not really attached to the ideas about the age of the earth, but it's like a whole load of political and economic ideas I feel very attached to and very much like they bring great value to the world if they were explored more and introduced more. Um, so I'm very, I'm very passionate about my ideas. I'm not in a position of saying we should all sort of let go of our ideas and hold hands. Um, I'm, <laughs> the, the reason for like engaging in this conversation is, is because of an intense sense of passion around ideas, but also recognizing a futility to just having passion. Because I think, um, like you say about the defensive response, I think my natural inclination as well as a lot of people's can be okay if we're going to have a discussion about like our contrasting views fiona i'm going to lead with like my best argument on why the minimum wage should be abolished okay i'm going to give you that one right and i'm going to use my clearest logic i'm going to make sure there's no way you can like escape from that through some loophole and then you'll be convinced right because that's what that's what people do when they're presented with a good argument well you know in socratic dialogues maybe but nowhere else actually um so it instantly i'm not saying for you but if you do this if i did that with a lot of people who were let's say on the political left and um attached to those ideas it could very well fire instantly a defensive shutdown kind of response right where rather than convince them i've just made them feel like hang on a minute someone's trying to it's like you've got some salesman at your door trying to scam you and this guy this guy's um he's on some sort of corporate lobby group right and he's come up with some clever tricky argument now i don't i don't like the sound of this um and i think what i notice myself is and i think it's pervasive is my, my core feeling of frustration arises out of like a sense of not being listened to right and i think that's what i see a lot going on in the world of people feel that they're not um they're not listened to like the other hasn't understood the position they're in to begin with and why they're there and then they're not willing to listen because they want to be listened to first, right? And I find this in a lot of disagreements I have. It's like, okay, who gets to be listened to first? And I don't know, like, where we go with this to have a productive change in the world. I recall, like, one of the most inspiring things I've seen, one of those beautiful films I saw, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of it, but it was on reconciliation groups in Palestine, Israel, where you would have people on either side of that divide um, often very locked into their own positions coming together and having to spend time listening to each other and taking it in turns and this idea of suspending judgment suspending opinions to take on another narrative and i think they had to do something like uh, they had to tell each other's stories and they had to argue from the perspective of the other and these are the kind of things people do um, when you get to an extreme, like the situation in the Middle East is beyond extreme, right? But I also think it's probably where we're at with things like Brexit and Trump and the left-right economic divide is that we need to go beyond like shouting at each other 
on the internet and and move to some kind of forum like that yeah absolutely i mean i think I think it's not until we start to touch into those deeper places with each other that we can that we can um, move beyond that I'm right, no, I'm right position. You know, when I mean, I, I've seen it lots of times, you know, that when we actually start to tell our stories and, and the real story, not not just the cover story, as it were, there will be a you know compassion is the natural response to that isn't it when we when we hear our our each other's deepest human stories it's not that then we try to understand or try to be compassionate but that but that we naturally are because we know our own version of that yeah so as you say you know those kind of um I think we have to touch into it on that level to really to really make progress as well as doing that for ourselves I mean I think we I think there's two parts to this isn't there one is to do our own inner work so that we're engaged in that ongoing process of being willing to look and see you know what am I believing what do I think about those people what is driving this and being willing to to get into those kind of reconciliations with with people, um, and that does mean suspending suspending that urge to be right or to prove ourselves or to you know win out in some way. Yeah, because I I personally find it much more enriching um, in in life to be able to see from as many perspectives as possible, and. I'm not saying I always do it, but I particularly notice that when I meet people who are just very locked into the one, I, my feeling is that's kind of a prison, you know, um, and that's, it's not, you're just not going to enjoy life as much by just hammering the same. And it's also a very frustrating way to live because you have to go through life wondering why everyone else is so stupid and they just don't get it, which is. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you can cut yourself off into, you know, into that kind of bunker can't you I mean that's really what we're talking about isn't it that kind of bunker mentality where they're all yeah. idiots or you know they're all out to get me in some way and 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 I think that actually in a sense prevents us from seeing what's really going on what's what what actually is threatening or not you know we get these skewed a skewed sense of what's going on and we and then we can't see the wood for the trees then then we can't make sense of it all yeah and i also i notice i think my initial fears in doing this were around you know kind of what we were saying about would your opinion on the top rate of tax change if you suddenly didn't feel so harshly towards the one percent right and i can recall in various settings, in religious dialogues, in economic dialogues, feeling like if I took on the other's point of view, maybe I wouldn't have a self anymore. Maybe I wouldn't have a point of view. I'd just be whatever group I was in. I'd lose myself. And it was almost like a, a sense of like, almost bravery and go, okay, like I'm gonna take the plunge, three, two, one, here we go, dive in and see from their perspective. And then it does feel for a moment like, oh yeah, I could be a left-wing socialist or I could be an evangelical Christian or, or whatever. But then 
I come back to myself and I remember, oh yeah, but there's all these reasons why I think this. And I might change a bit, but I don't lose myself. I still generally hold the same perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. My sense is, is similar to that. The same perspectives, but um, maybe a, a little lighter yeah. or a little less self-righteously or something along those lines. Um, but I, I think it's a great experiment. I mean, I, I do it. I do it now through acting. I go, I go oh, to right. an acting class once a week. So by definition, I'm, I'm playing yeah. different, different roles at different times um, in all sorts of different ways. And I think it's a great thing for, for all of us to, to try on, whether, however we do that, but just, just to play with like, well, how, how would it be to be this and, and not that? You know, what, what would that look like? Um, because as you say, when you realize that actually you still, you're still you, <laughs> yeah. that, that it's not your beliefs and opinions that make you, 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 you are simply you and they're added into the mix, then, then that I think frees us up somewhat. And we may well stay in the same positions, but I think we're in them differently. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay, thank you for all that, Fiona. Is there anything else you'd like to? Pleasure. No, I th I think really just just if if anything to encourage people to to investigate in the ways that we've been talking about. Yeah, I know. I'd be interested to see what people's feelings are about that because you know, even to the point of really consciously going down that road and maybe creating some sort of format for people to. Because people are massively engaged in political dialogue online. And I think it would be interesting if the format emerged when that was done a little bit differently with a different ethos. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice to talk to you. Nice. Thanks, I'll link Richard. to, um, thank you, and I'll link to Fiona's website and your book below from which we were referring to the chapter. Okay. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.